0: On the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit forbade his going on to Asia, and as a result, Paul carried the gospel into Europe. But God had not forgotten Asia, and as the Apostle comes to the end of his journey, he finds himself in the great city of Ephesus, with the door to Asia open once again. (music) Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. God provided a new field in which the Apostle Paul was to work, and with it, new workers. Priscilla and Aquila are a married, working-class couple, and Apollos, an educated and eloquent Greek, some very different people who use their gifts and talents to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Join Dr. Boyce now as he introduces Paul's opportunities, his ministry, and his fellow workers to the ancient city of Ephesus, right at the door to the province of Asia.
1: One of the great things about closed doors in the Christian life is that they are not necessarily or always closed forever. Sometimes there's a period in our lives when God closes something to us, directs us in another way. But then as we go on in the Christian life, we find that later God opens the door, and we find a new field of service. We have a case of that in the 18th chapter of Acts, beginning at verse 18, that we're to study because in these verses we find the door to Asia, primarily through the important town of Ephesus opening for the Apostle Paul. I've spoken of closed doors because if you can think back earlier to the 16th chapter when Paul was passing through that area of the world for the first time, you may recall that it was on that occasion, on his second missionary journey, that the Holy Spirit kept closing doors for them as they made their way across country and ended up at Troas right across from Macedonia. They wanted to go into Asia and were told that the Holy Spirit forbid it. They wanted to go into Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit kept them from going there. That is, they couldn't veer to the left and south. They couldn't veer to the right and north. But as they kept on, they eventually ended up carrying the gospel into Europe. But that didn't mean that God had forgotten Asia. And here in the province of Asia was this great city of Ephesus. And at this point in the book, this point in Paul's journeys toward the end now, of his second great missionary journey, he does finally arrive in Ephesus and begin a work which was to be greatly blessed by God and prosper over a period of many years. Certainly Luke who writes the book was aware of the importance of this city because at this point, and indeed for the rest of the next two chapters, he seems to be concentrating on this city. Matter of fact, he concentrates on the city so much that he does something that has always been confusing to Sunday school teachers. Those who teach the book of Acts in Sunday school know that at least at this portion of the book, you have to teach it in terms of Paul's missionary journeys. It's very easy to see where the first missionary journey begins and ends because the Holy Spirit says, separate unto me Barnabas and Paul, and they go off and do the work, and when they're done, they come back and they report to the church at Antioch. So that one's easy to understand. And then it's easy to understand also when they start off on the second missionary journey, because we read on that occasion that after a while, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go off and visit the churches that we founded the first time out. And they had their disagreement. Barnabas went one way and Paul went another. But it's very easy to understand where that journey begins, The problem is that the ending of the second missionary journey and the beginning of the third are run together by Luke in this passage in so, we would almost say, careless a manner that it's quite easy to read past them and not even understand what is happening. Nevertheless, there is a change here. It takes place between verses 22 and verses 23. Paul landed at Caesarea, verse 22, went up. It doesn't say where he went up to, but it means Jerusalem. That's where you go up to because Jerusalem was high. He went up to Jerusalem, greeted the church there, reported on his work, and then from Jerusalem that was high, he went down to Antioch and reported to the church there. So that really is the end of the second missionary journey. And then verse 23 says, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place in Galatia and Phrygia And that's the beginning of the third missionary journey. The reason I mention that and the fact that Luke more or less blends these two important trips together is that Luke's interest at this point shifts from what we would call a numbering of the journeys to the establishing and ministering to this great church in Ephesus. The end of the second journey, which we're dealing with now, Paul passes by and is there just briefly though he meets with considerable success. And then on the third journey, as he starts out again, the story of which is told in the next chapter, he spends several years in Ephesus. That is the longest period of ministry to date of any place that he has visited on these missionary travels. Well, we have a new field, beginning with this middle portion of verse 18. And what I want us to see as we read and study these verses that introduce it to us is that this new field was also provided for by new workers. There are several of them mentioned in the chapter. First of all, there are Priscilla and Aquila, who have already been introduced to us earlier at the start of the chapter. They travel with Paul to Ephesus and end up being host to a church there. We're told about it elsewhere in Paul's writings. And then we're told about Apollos, this very interesting, brilliant, and eloquent man that came to Asia from Alexandria in North Africa and was instructed by Priscilla and Aquila and then had a great ministry of his own, which Paul reflects on in his first letter to the Corinthians written later. Now, I'd like to look at these people, because God was obviously providing for Paul and providing for the work, and what God did there is what we want God to do as well today. Priscilla and Aquila are interesting. Now, they were what we would call just working people. They were tent makers, probably meant they worked in leather because the tents were made out of skins, and that would mean that they were not among the aristocracy, certainly. They were not particularly well-educated so far as we know. They were Jews that had been living in Rome. But when the emperor Claudius issued his edict against the Jews in Rome and banished them from the city, Priscilla and Aquila were among those who were affected. And as a result of that edict of Claudius, they left Rome and traveled to Corinth where Paul met them. An edict of Claudius mentioned in the earlier part of the chapter in verse 3 is significant historically because that is the first indication in secular literature of the presence of believing people in this great capital of the Roman Empire. It's an indirect reference and a questionable one, but Suetonius, the Roman historian, says in one place where he's reporting on the activities of Claudius, that because of insurrections that took place by one Crestus, Claudius vanished the Jews from Rome. Always been a great deal of speculation what Suetonius meant when he said that this trouble was at the instigation of a man named Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. Could, of course, be a reference to somebody that we've never heard of and don't know about in any other way, but the General feeling is that what Suetonius probably did was mix up the word Crestus with the word Christ. He was writing about this later, after all, and was getting it secondhand. and all he really knew is that at this time there was a great deal of disturbance in the Jewish community that centered around this person whose name he thought was Crestus. Probably was the name Christ, and it's an indication that there in the Jewish community in those days there was a great deal of ferment. Certainly, when Paul later got to Rome himself, he tells us about it because there was jealousy in that community, and Paul actually experienced a certain amount of mistreatment as a result of it himself. But here you have a disturbance which resulted, as I've indicated, in Priscilla and Aquila being banished from the capital, how they came to Corinth, there they met Paul, and Paul later writes to the Romans, which he did from Corinth on that second missionary journey. He says in the 16th chapter, verse 3, that he wants those in Rome to greet Priscilla and Aquila, which means that sometime during the year and a half that Paul spent in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila left Corinth and went back to Rome, probably because at that point, the edict of Claudius had been lifted. But they came back to Corinth because now in This passage that we're reading, they were there when Paul finally left at the end of his year-and-a-half ministry and went to Ephesus, and they went along with him and apparently settled there. So here was a couple that, though they had no particular status in the Roman world and no exceptional education, at least in terms of the learning of the day, were nevertheless very active Christian people, and they were mobile. And they traveled with Paul and were very helpful to him in his ministry here, and then also later, as we're going to see. Now, we learn some things about them as we study the various references to them in the New Testament, here, and in Paul's letters. Already in the 18th chapter, earlier, verse 3, we find that when Paul was at Corinth in the early days, he lived with them. Now, we looked at that. We saw that Paul had come from Macedonia, and at that point, apparently, had run out of money churches had been helping him along the way. No doubt the church in Antioch had done that, and the churches of Macedonia had done it as well. When he writes to the Philippians in the letter that bears that name, he thanks them for having sent money to his support time and time again. there were several occasions when the churches of Macedonia supported him. Yet when he got to Corinth, he had no money, and found that he had to work, which he was quite willing to do, and in that connection fell in with Priscilla and Aquila, who had the same trade he did. So here you have a couple that opened their house to Paul and labored with him, not only in this manual trade of tent making, but also in the gospel, and undoubtedly learned a great deal from him during the time they lived together in that city. In the 16th chapter of Romans, which I mentioned earlier, verse 3, when Paul writes to the Romans and says, greet Aquila and Priscilla, he says something else about them that is worth noting. He says, because they risked their life for me. Now, we don't know what that refers to. There's nothing here in Acts that speaks of it. We don't know whether that's something that happened early on in his ministry or something that happened rather late. Since Paul wrote the letter from Corinth, we presume that it's something that happened in that city, and yet we don't know what it was. It was an occasion where the Jews tried to make trouble, and yet it didn't seem to be anything that affected Paul directly. Nevertheless, when Paul writes of them, he says, these two risked their lives for me. Now, that's important. There was a great bond and a great service. So when Paul, as we saw in our earlier study, was perhaps a bit down and discouraged, being in financial need and having left his coworkers, Timothy and Titus and others behind as he came on to Athens and then Corinth. God provided this couple who were even willing to risk their lives for him. And then when they went on to Ephesus, although again, it doesn't say that here, apparently they established themselves in a home where they began their business and there had a church begin to meet. The reason I say that is because in First Corinthians, the 16th chapter, the 19th verse, toward the end, where Paul is again giving greetings, he sends greetings to Aquila and Priscilla and to the church that is in their house. I'm giving it the other way. He's bringing greetings from their house. So we have in that reference an indication that they were not only co-workers with him, But when Paul left and went on, they hosted the church and were very serviceable in the ministry. Now, these verses also tell us about Apollos. Apollos was quite a different kind of character. Quill and Priscilla were Jews, they were working people, a married couple. Apollos was a man who, so far as we can tell, was single, was a Greek, and was quite Eloquent and learned in all of the learning of the day. He came from Alexandria to start with, a great metropolis in North Africa, a city which figured at that time and also in early church history as a source of great learning. Alexandria was, for example, the city of Philo, a great Jewish philosopher who was so versed not only in the Greek philosophy of the day, but in the Old Testament, and who interpreted much of the Old Testament in Greek philosophical terms, a very wise man. Since Apollos was educated in Alexandria and was from that city, it's quite tempting to think that he probably knew Philo, though nothing in the New Testament tells us that exactly. What we are told about him in verse 24 and following a number of very interesting things. The first thing we find there are his assets, and there are quite a few of them because he was a very impressive man. We're told, first of all, that he was learned. That is, he had been taught in all the learning of the day. He'd gone to school, not only high school, he'd gone to what we would call college and university, and he had done graduate work. He was a very learned man. Secondly, we're told that he had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Now, the reference there, of course, is not to the New Testament scriptures because they were only coming into existence at this time. They certainly had not circulated. The reference is rather to the Old Testament scriptures. Here again, it's hard not to think of Philo because Philo was a man who took all of the Old Testament and expounded it in contemporary terms. And if Apollos had had any contact with Philo, Undoubtedly, this would have been part of his training. Here was a man who knew the Old Testament and knew the Old Testament well. The third thing we're told about him is that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. It's hard to know how to take that. When we read the words, the Lord, we think naturally of Jesus Christ. And it may be that that's what this refers to. Later on, it does say he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. So he knew something about Jesus. But on the other hand, the words the Lord often refer to Jehovah, the God of the Jews, the God of the Old Testament. And at this point in the listing of Apollo's assets, it probably means that he was instructed in the ways of God as that was unfolded in the Old Testament. That would mean that he knew the law. He knew what was expected of God's people, and certainly he tried to follow it. The fourth thing that is mentioned in his favor as a great asset is his fervor, That is, he didn't merely know these things with detached intellectual or academic remoteness, but on the contrary, these things were very important to him, and when he spoke about them and taught them, he taught them with great fervor, we would say with great energy and great conviction. No doubt that's one reason why he was so effective as an orator, Oh, he would have had all the skills of Greek oratory. He knew how to hold an audience, he knew how to develop his points, he knew how to use language in a way that drew and persuaded his hearers. But what is mentioned here is his fervor. This was not merely an exercise or a skill on his part, but it's something that was deeply embedded in his heart. Then finally, the fifth thing mentioned is that he taught about Jesus accurately. I want to comment on that, but before I do, in order to comment on it well, I want you to see that although Apollos had all these very definite assets, he also had one great liability. The one liability is that he knew only the baptism of John. I ask the question, what does that mean? Apollos knew only the baptism of John. Well, it can mean one of two things. It can mean that he knew only the baptism to repentance and not the baptism that is associated with the work of the Holy Spirit when a person first comes to Jesus Christ. It would mean, perhaps, that he was strong in his knowledge of the first person of the Trinity and even to a certain extent in his knowledge of the second person of the Trinity, but he knew nothing about the third person of the Trinity. It could mean that, and there's some encouragement to think that it does, because in the next chapter we have a situation like that, where the baptism of John is mentioned, people knowing that baptism, but who understood nothing of the Holy Spirit. And when they were taught about the Holy Spirit, they believed and were baptized by the Holy Spirit, and also undoubtedly with water into the name of Jesus, verse 5. I say that's one meaning. On the other hand, this could mean something quite different. When it says that Apollos knew only the baptism of John. It could mean, particularly since this is put in the context of Apollos's knowledge of the Old Testament, that he knew the unfolding of God's plan up to and including the ministry of John the Baptist, but that he did not yet know that the Messiah, whom John the Baptist had come to announce, had actually come. I incline to the latter point of view for several reasons, mostly because of the way in which Priscilla and Aquila came and began to explain the word of God to him. Moreover, I can even understand it historically. Apollos was well-educated and therefore also a well-traveled man. And we can well imagine that in his very early days, in his youth, he had gone up to Jerusalem, especially if he had an interest in the Old Testament scriptures. And while there in those days had come perhaps under the influence of the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. Certainly, if he had a spiritual heart, he would have responded to John's preaching. And he would have heard John preach that he had come to prepare the way of the Messiah. We're not told a whole lot about John's preaching in the New Testament, but John would have known the Old Testament scriptures. We know that he quoted them on occasion, quoting Isaiah for his own ministry that he had come to make straight the way of the Lord. And perhaps, we don't know this for sure, but perhaps uh, Paulus had soaked this up and had come to believe, no doubt rightly, that the time of the Messiah was near and had taken it upon himself as his task, now as John the Baptist disciple, to go and preach the same message. And perhaps with that message on his lips, he had returned to Alexandria and had preached there. And then eventually had gone on to Asia and Ephesus, as we find in this passage, and had preached the same thing there. Here was a man who knew what the Old Testament scriptures taught, who understood what the Messiah would do, and who said the time is at hand, the Messiah is about to come. I say that may very well be what it means when it says that he taught about Jesus accurately. That is, everything that Jesus was to do, Apollos was knowledgeable of and willing to teach on the basis of the Old Testament Scriptures. And yet he didn't know that Jesus had come. Now what do you do with a case like that? Here's a man of great eloquence, great ability, and apparently even being greatly used of God because he went into the synagogues and he was arguing most effectively with the Jews and other people. Well, let me tell you a story from church history. Back at the time of the Reformation in England, there was a man like this. A man who was very learned, had a thorough knowledge of the scripture and who could speak with great fervor and eloquence. Was a bishop in the church at the time. His name was Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was the man who was later martyred for his faith during the Reformation and who was carried out to the stake with Master Ridley and had those great words which are often quoted in church history courses. He said, be brave, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by God shall never be put out So that was a great dying testimony of this great martyr, Hugh Latimer. But in the early days, Hugh Latimer was not a Christian. He was in the church, through the scriptures, but he didn't really know what it meant to be born again, and he certainly was not justified by faith. Like many in his day, he still thought that the way to get to heaven was by works. Now, there was a young monk who knew Latimer and looked up to him a great deal. His name was Binny. He was just a little man, and he didn't have much education, and no one thought very much of him, and he wondered how in the world it would be possible for him to bring the gospel to this important man, Hugh Latimer. Well, he prayed about it, and finally hit upon an idea. Priests were required to hear the confessions of those who wanted to confess their sins. So one day when Latimer was ministering in church, Benny went up to him, and as he was going out of the church tugged at his sleeve and said to him, sir, may I say my confession? Are you willing to hear my confession? And Latimer, of course, said, yes, he would. So they went into the confessional and Benny began to confess, but what he confessed was the gospel. He spent a lot of time confessing how he was a sinner and was unable to save himself by his own good works and how he was so thankful that Jesus had died for him, and now, by faith, the righteousness of Jesus could be imputed to him apart from works. And that's what he confessed to Hugh Latimer. And Hugh Latimer heard the gospel in that way in the confessional for the very first time, and was converted. It was a very clever device on the part of this young monk, Binny, but God richly used it, and it was important in the outworking of the English Reformation. Now, something like that happened here. I can imagine that when uh, Paulus, this very learned man, came to Ephesus, Basila and Aquila, who were still there at the time, Paul having gone on to Jerusalem and then to Antioch, said to each other, this is a very distinguished and interesting man, let's go to hear him. Paulus was teaching in the synagogue, they were Jews, they were welcome, of course, as others were also. Well, they went up, and they listened, and they sat there, and they had the same kind of reaction that many Christian people have had sitting in the pews of Christian churches listening to ministers who are very learned and eloquent but don't know the gospel. They must have said to themselves, this man certainly knows the Bible, and he can quote the Old Testament effectively. Only one thing he lacks, he doesn't know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that Jesus Christ has come doesn't know that Jesus died for our sin. He doesn't know that Jesus was raised again from the dead by God the Father on the third day. He doesn't know that he's ascended into heaven. He doesn't know that he has now commissioned his uh, apostles and disciples to go into all the world with his gospel. So after the service, standing in the vestibule, they must have said to each other, what do you suppose we can do? And Priscilla said, well, let's have him in for dinner. And Aquila Her husband said, that's a good idea. and Maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk to him. So that's what they did. They said, Mr. Apollos, would you care to come home with us and have dinner today or next week? And he said, well, I would be glad to. Thank you very much. And so he did. He accepted the invitation. And after he had eaten and had enjoyed their hospitality, after they had demonstrated their friendship, they must have said something like this. They must have said, we were really very moved by your teaching from the Old Testament today. You certainly know it well, and it was a great blessing to our hearts. But we wonder, do you know that the one about whom you were speaking has come? Apollos would have said, what do you mean he has come? John the Baptist came only to announce the way. Oh, no, they would have said, that's true. John the Baptist came to announce the way, but he did come. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist pointed him out. And he baptized him, and he said, pointing to this man, his name was Jesus of Nazareth. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Apollos would have said, is that true? Can I believe that? If so, what are the evidences? They began in that context to explain the way of God more adequately to this man, Apollos. And I must say, at this point, he was more receptive the teaching and encouragement than many members of the clergy I have known. He really received the word humbly, and he believed it and assimilated it with the knowledge that he already had, and it utterly transformed his ministry. We know that because later he went on to Corinth where, as it tells us, he was greatly used of God because, as it says in the very last verse of the chapter, He vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, was indeed the Christ. Now, those are the people that God brought to help Paul and the others in this work in Asia and also in Corinth, where the Word had gone forward in such power. Let me apply what we have looked at here to us in these ways three ways. Number one, learning, education, fervor, even knowledge of the scriptures and fervor in presenting it are not enough in themselves, either in Christian workers or in just plain Christians. There must be a knowledge of Jesus Christ. I say that because there are always many people who sit in churches who learn a great deal They know, in our day, not only the Old Testament, but they know the New Testament as well. And if you ask them to tell the Bible stories, they certainly are able to tell them. They don't know the way of Jesus, they don't really know personally that He died for them and that He rose again for their justification. They know His name, but they don't know Him as their Savior and Lord, and they are not His disciples. And so I say, in order to apply this, using the case of Apollos as an example, that although you may have gone to church for many, many years, and you may know a great deal about the Scriptures, the mere learning and even the fervent teaching of these things is not enough. You must know Jesus Christ, and you must trust Him. To know all of the other is good, but you can know that and still be lost. What you have to know is that Jesus died for you, and trust Him if you're to be His and go to heaven. The second thing is this obvious point. Many different kinds of people are needed in Christ's work. I pointed out how different Aquila and Priscilla were from Apollos, and we know also how different Apollos was from Paul. Paul was the Jewish rabbi, one who got in there and tussled with people in the synagogue and elsewhere. Apollos was a man of Great polish, airy addition, and learning. Matter of fact, later on, quite apart from anything that Apollos or Paul had done, it produced a problem at Corinth, because some were naturally attracted to Apollos and his gifts, and they said, We're of Apollos, and others were attracted to Paul and his insight, and they said we're of Paul, others said we're of Peter, and so on. There were factions in the church, and neither Peter nor Paul nor Apollos were part of it, and Paul did everything he could to overcome it, saying, At one point, I have planted, Apollos has watered, but it's God who gave the increase. But nevertheless, they were quite different. And the point I'm making is that all of them were needed in the church. Paul, with his energetic missionary advance, was much needed, and Apollos, who came later and watered what was sown, was much needed. And Priscilla and Aquila, who settled down and opened their house and were hosts to the church, were also very much needed application of that to us is simply that you are needed if you are Christ's disciple. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit imparts to Christians various gifts as it pleases God and to everyone a gift. So God has given you a spiritual gift if you're a Christian and the reason he has given it is because that gift is needed where you are. If you choose not to use your gift or to think, well, I'm not needed because someone is more eloquent or someone else is more hospitable or someone else has more energy or is a better evangelist than I am, then you're making a great mistake. And if you hold back on your gift, the church is impoverished as a result. You're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're needed and you're needed right where you are. And if you don't know how to use your gift, well, then you pray about it. You say, Lord Jesus Christ, show me what I can do. Show me why I'm here why you have brought me to faith, why you have made me the way I am, and use what I am and where I am in order to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the third point I want to make is this. It's a bit of an inference, but I think probably Paul in these days must have been praying very strongly for these churches, churches that he had been instrumental in founding and was then leaving behind. And he must have been wondering who in the world was going to come and stay in these churches and teach them and lead them on in the way of the Lord. After all, he only had a certain number of workers with him when he started out. He had Silas, had Timothy, whom he picked up along the way, and later he got Titus, but that was only three, and he founded more churches than that. And if he put one here and another one there and another one there, there were still churches for which he had no one. He must have been praying, and he must have been praying as the Lord himself had taught his disciples, saying, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers into his harvest. Those words are as true for us today as they were in Paul's day or in the day of our Lord. The harvest is plenteous just outside our doors. There are millions of people, millions of people in this city alone that need the gospel. Oh, I know they're resistant to the gospel. I know that no one left to himself is coming to God. No one is seeking God. But if Paul was told by God at Corinth, I have many people in this city, certainly among four million people in the city of Philadelphia, God has yet many people. And what we need to do is go reach them. You say, well, I can't reach them all. That is true. And that is why we must pray. We must ask God to raise up laborers for this vineyard. I pray for that, don't you? Every time someone comes to Philadelphia that seems to have an interest in the city, I say, hallelujah, Lord, thank you for answering my prayer. I met someone like that this morning. They've come from inner city Chicago, they've come to inner city Philadelphia, and they want to start churches in the inner city. I thought, amen, Lord, you're really hearing us. I'm sure we need it more than Chicago does. At any rate, God sent them here. And every time I hear of somebody who leaves, I feel diminished. Oh, I know God directs people to other places, maybe even to Chicago, but I'm always unhappy when I know that someone leaves because the work here is so great. We wanna pray that God will raise up laborers, that God will give us Priscilla's and Aquila's, God will give us Apollos, people that speak well, people that are friendly, people who are great evangelists, people who are willing to serve, because all of these are needed, and it's by all these means that God does work to save some. Let us pray. Our Father, our needs are so great. The needs of our city are great. The needs of our country are great, even the world. And so we pray that you would raise up laborers to the task at hand, here and elsewhere. Our Father, above all, There are Christians who are sitting back saying, well, I'm not much, I don't have much to offer, I don't understand the scriptures well, or I really don't have much education. We ask our Father that you would reach those very people and show them in practical, tangible, effective ways what it is that they can do. And many might be brought to Jesus Christ as Savior. For we pray in His blessed name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at one 800 488-1888, or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B 0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts, and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.